Barrett. The following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Americans love freedom. They prize freedom almost above anything. And the trouble with Americans is that they want the wrong kind of freedom. Uh, we think of freedom only in political terms, you know, freedom of speech, freedom to bear arms, who's packing, freedom to assemble. But however, most Americans, what they really want is personal freedom. Uh, freedom to be left alone. And the reason we want to be left alone is because we're naturally selfish. Uh, we kind of want to do our own thing. We want to go wherever we want to go, whoever we want to go with. And therefore, this type of freedom has implications when it comes to your belief in God. In fact, it becomes extremely inconvenient to believe God because everybody knows if God exists, and He does, undoubtedly He has opinions and preferences and rules about what you should be doing and where you should be going and who you should be going with. And so really the result is what most Americans want these days is not freedom of religion. Are you ready? They want freedom from religion. They do. And that's not freedom, that's actually slavery. One of the things that you need to realize that you're going to serve someone. Now, this is for those of you who are really old. Remember, there used to be a singer, his name was Bob Dylan. Remember that? And he sang really, really, really badly. Uh, his voice was just horrific, in my opinion. And so he would sing these songs. Well, there was a, a song that he produced on an album, You Gotta Serve Somebody. And it said, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. <laughs> right? Bob Dylan. Nasally, horrible, awful. But the truth of that song is a reality. We either serve a loving, gracious, merciful God who created us and knows what's best for us, or we serve ourselves, our pride, uh, this world, and an enemy who hates us and wants to destroy us. But you're going to serve someone. You're going to be under someone's yoke. That's the teaching of Scripture, and that's the reality. So as we face now and transition to the third section of the book of Galatians, and if you're new with us, we're studying this book verse by verse. So open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Now in chapter 5, he's talking to us about our freedom in Christ, and he's saying to us, that as you're free in Christ, it's going to make all the difference in the world in how you live. Your doctrine is going to be lived out. And he wants to make sure that it's lived out in a way that honors the Lord. So after defending his apostleship in chapters 1 and 2, after defining justification by faith alone by grace, through faith, in Christ, in chapters 3 and 4. Now in chapter 5, he's saying right doctrine is going to result in right living. It's the practical section of this entire letter. And Paul emphasizes that God designed justification to result in sanctification. He's going to say, it's going to change the way you live. So if you've got your Bibles, you're open to chapter 5. And he's basically saying, you cannot live for Christ 
on your own. It's got to be the Spirit of God. You can't glorify God on your own. It's got to be the Spirit of God glorifying God through you. It's the Spirit of God who makes faith work in your life, work out in your life. And it's only the Holy Spirit who makes the life of faith free, productive, and acceptable to God. In fact, it is so freeing that John 8.36 says, so if the Son makes you free, you will be what? Free indeed. So these final two chapters is really a portrait of the Spirit-filled life. And what he's doing, you got to get it, the Judaizers, the false teachers who are attacking the Galatian churches and manipulating them and saying, you got to do this, you got to do the law, you got to become a Jew before you can get saved, etc., they're going to bring another accusation. You know what their accusation is? When you're saved by grace through faith and you didn't do anything to earn it and it's all given to you, then you can live any way you like. And Paul, they say, they accuse him of cultivating an immoral or disobedient lifestyle for Christians. Saying, you're, you're going to create all these wild Christians instead of having people who follow the law and, and live morally. And they're going to make that accusation and Paul's going to say, nope, it's actually the opposite. And you know what he's going to say in chapter 5? Let me give you a sneak preview. He's going to tell you that when you are indwelt with the Spirit of God, and by the way, is every Christian indwelt with the Spirit of God? Yes, Romans 8 9, you have the Spirit. And when you're indwelt with the Spirit of God, you will produce the fruit of the Spirit. You will. It's going to come out of you. In fact, the opposite of that, the deeds of the flesh, those are going to become more minimal in your life, even though they'll still be present. You'll see yourself do them. It's not going to be the trend of your life, because he says if it's the trend of your life, then you're not going to inherit salvation. He makes that really plain as he walks on in chapter 5. But you will produce the fruit, and it's all together there, one fruit of the Spirit. It's going to happen. So what he does in this beginning part of Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, he's saying, look, don't ever go back to the law. Don't ever go back under the bondage, are you ready, of trying to earn your salvation. Don't do that. Listen, when you have been saved, you are free. And that freedom is, I no longer have to earn God's favor. I'm given God's favor. Remember, you got to get this clear in your thinking, the only faith on planet earth that actually teaches that God accomplishes your salvation is the one that's in this book. Every other faith, every other religion on planet earth is you're working your way to heaven. And you're under the obligation, under the law, to work your way. And when you blow it, when you sin, when you mess up, you got to keep earning God's favor. Over and over and over again, Christianity says, once you're given God's favor, you never have to earn it again. Isn't that cool? Listen, are you forgiven of all your sin, past, present, and future? Yes or no? That means you have His favor. You say, well, Chris, then why should I confess my sin and repent? Because you want to please your Heavenly Father. Not because you're trying to earn His favor anymore. You're just pleasing Him by saying, I want to work, walk in a way that honors you and glorifies you, but I, I don't have to somehow earn my salvation all over again. I don't have to keep going back and trying to make sure that I'm right with you. You're already right with Him. And that's the freedom that we have in Christ. Are you getting it? So what He's going to tell you in these first six verses is don't go back to slavery where you're trying to earn your salvation. Now look, would you admit it? There's not one of us in this room that, as a Christian, 
we start to try to earn God's favor again. Anybody with me? We're all recovering Pharisees trying to, we slip into that. That's why it's so vital that you remember every day that you have been saved from past, present, and future sin. You are right with Christ. You're covered in His righteousness. You have a perfect standing before God, and that will never change. Amen? And you've got to remind yourself of that, otherwise you're going to slip into that works thing again. So he wants to remind you of who you are and the privileges you have. And what he's going to do in these verses is motivate you negatively and then motivate you positively to make sure you live under the reality of what you have in Jesus Christ. Are you ready for that? That's freedom today. Let's read this passage out loud because I know you love to read things out loud. Let's do it together. Galatians chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. We're in a new section of Galatians. Here we go. Everyone together? It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Point number one in your outline track with me through your outline. It is be impacted by Christ's will to make you free. Does Christ make you free? Yes or no? Yes, He does. And He says it this way in verse 1, the first phrase there. It was for freedom that Christ, and it's an indicative here, it is a fact, set us free. It is a fact, you are free, Christian. To liberty, Christ has delivered us. You could paraphrase it that way. So he didn't set you free to kind of roam the hills or to kind of do whatever you want or to kind of fall under a legalistic system or even to try to, you know, have a frenzy of immorality and disobedience. No, he freed you up so you could enjoy the benefits of this new status, this new relationship. Understand, commentator John Stott lays it out this way. He says this, listen, our former state is portrayed as slavery, as a non-Christian. Jesus Christ now is our liberator, conversion as an act of emancipation, and now the Christian life as a life of freedom. What has he done? Christ gave you a new heart. It says in Romans 6, 6, the old man is dead, you have a new nature and that new nature wants to please God, Romans 6.17, you want to obey Him, not because you have to, but because you want to, in this new intimacy you enjoy, you have the ability to live by the Spirit's power, you're free to obey God, you can love Christ and love others and serve others, and you're able to enter into the Lord's presence, are you ready for this? Any time in prayer and have intimacy with the greatest being that exists in the universe, our Lord Jesus Christ. You can bow your head, not even bow your head, not even close your eyes, but be instantly in the presence of Christ anytime as a Christian. Can I hear an amen? You have the ultimate resource. This is the freedom. Before salvation, you were penniless. You were pathetic. You were slaves to a system that wanted to beat you up and hate you and destroy you. 
And now after salvation, you're wealthy men and women who can enjoy immeasurable benefits and heavenly blessings. All the heavenly blessings. And every one, Ephesians 1.3, to the fullest extent. So Christ has made you free so you can enjoy that freedom. You have this perfect status before God that will never change. Now sometimes you get guilty. Sometimes you're overwhelmed with your own sin, correct? So you confess, you repent, but your status before God never changes. Ever. Once you're in Christ, are you ready for this? If you're genuinely in Christ, you are stuck. You can't get out of it. He's transformed you. He made you new. He's going to bring you home. And that's an incredible privilege. Number two in your outline. He says, be committed to stay free and resist slavery. Listen, stay free. Look what he says in the second half of verse 1. 1b. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Uh, J.B. Phillips offers this helpful paraphrase. Listen to what he says. It's there in your outline. It says, plant your feet firmly, therefore, within the freedom that Christ has won for us, and do not let yourself be caught again in the shackles of slavery. Paul strongly commands, and here there are two commands that kind of go back and forth, a positive and a negative. Stay where you are in Christ. The positive command is, listen, don't ever forget your perfect standing. Remember, your sin by faith was a non-meritorious work. Faith, you entrust your life to Christ and His work that He did on the cross so your sin falls on Him and is judged there. God condemns Jesus. All of God's wrath for your sin poured out on Jesus. Then the double substitutionary atonement, He then covers you with His righteousness and now you have this perfect standing. So right now, when Christ looks at you, when God looks at you, He sees the righteousness of Christ and not your flub ups and your failures and your trip ups. He sees the perfection of Christ. And you are ready if you walk outside and somehow you wander out on the 15 freeway for some reason and the car just smacks you and you are instantly in God's presence. His welcome because you're perfect. You've been made righteous, not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus did right? That's what he's talking about here. And he says, hang on to grace. Every day you got to remind yourself you're under his grace. He's made you stand perfect in his presence. He did that, not you. And live under that reality. That's what he wants you to do. He says, hang on to it. Then negatively, he says, do not be subject again. And that word subject is, don't let them force you. Don't let them become you know, vulnerable to this submission. You say submission to what? Look at verse 1. He says, the yoke of slavery. Now, some of you are familiar with yoking, right? So you get two oxen together. The picture behind me will show you two oxen yoked together, right? So that they can accomplish this job. That's the, that's the easy picture. That's the simple picture. The hard picture here is that he actually does not refer to that kind of yoking. He refers to the yoking of slavery, where two slaves are yoked together to accomplish, and they can't escape, and they're bound together. And he's saying, you've been yoked in slavery as a person, and it's horrible, and it's awful. And he says, don't go back to that. 
If you're an animal, you've been released. Be released. If you're a slave, okay, under the yoke of slavery, where you're bound, you know, Romans would conquer nations and they would take all those people as slaves and they'd be sold as slaves and now you live as a slave. He says, don't get yoked to that anymore. And you know what's kind of trippy about legalistic yoked people who are yoked to slavery? They want others to join their chain gang. They really want you to be a part of their group because then it makes them feel like we're right in our works salvation. So he's telling you, don't get sucked into that. Don't buy into that. Because even the Jewish leaders, they would say things like, the yoke of the law. And they said, that's a good thing. That we would have perfect behavior and perfect speech. And that people would look at us and go, they don't see any sin at all. Do you know what the problem with that is? Are you ready? You know it. They forgot their mind, their heart, and their motives. And we're living before a God who is omniscient, who knows everything, correct? So can you be perfect before an omniscient God? Yes or no? Now, I don't care how external you are religiously, you cannot fix the inside. Only Christ can cover you with His righteousness and begin to transform you inside. That's what Paul is saying here. Don't be enslaved because once you are and you go down that road of trying to earn your salvation like every religion on planet earth, any other faith, even humanism, even those people who are atheists, they're trying to work their way to heaven. They're enslaved and they're fearful. They're fearful of what other people think of them and they're fearful of what God thinks of them and they've forgotten that only Christ can make them righteous. Pursuing salvation by doing it your way, living good, being religious, attending church, makes you yoked in slavery. Don't be re-choked up in a yoke to an animal. Don't be re-yoked up in slavery as a person. Listen, who are you going to serve? you got to serve somebody, right? The devil or the Lord Christ or the law. And what does Jesus say? Matthew eleven twenty eight. We'll look at it again. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my what? Take my yoke. You're going to serve me, but my yoke and learn from me is gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Your very inner man, your inner person. Listen, when Christ died, your sin, all of it, past, present, and future, was punished on Jesus. Live that way. When Christ died, all the guilt you have before God was wiped clean. I don't know about you, they don't do this today, but when I was in second grade, when you got in trouble, they'd write your name on the board. Anybody with me on this? Chris had his name on the board a lot. Multiple times. And I'll never forget the day that Mrs. King walked up to the board with her eraser and it was Chris, 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 Chris. Chris. And she just went, and it was wiped clean. And I could enjoy recess. <laughs> Jesus Christ, your name is listed multiple times on God's judgment board, and he just wiped that clean. And now you're free to enjoy him and all the benefits of salvation. All of them. 
when Christ died and rose, he did the work to secure eternal, forever forgiveness. And I know sometimes you're guilty. I know sometimes when you sin, you are under the guilt of that. But you need to remember to live under grace means that's cleansed, that's washed. And I want to live in a way that would then just live in the reality that I'm washed and cleansed and actually show that I'm washed and cleansed. So for the Galatians to walk back into the yoke of slavery was absurd. It was crazy. And yet they're considering doing just that because these, these Jewish teachers are so persuasive. So Paul is going to put the hammer down. Letter number three, be motivated to remain free. Be motivated to remain free in Christ. Now, he gives the Galatians both negative motivation and positive motion. And he makes some very strong statements negatively and some strong statements positively. And parents, it's okay to negatively motivate your children because God negatively motivates us as well as positively motivates us. So listen to both and understand he's trying to keep the, the Galatians from putting that yoke on and letting the Judaizers crank those bolts on so it's permanent and therefore, they're never going to be able to get out and they're going to show that they were never saved in the first place. He doesn't want that to occur. So he gives them first three negative motivations. Number one in your outline, Christ can't help you. Christ can't help you. Look what he says in verse two. If you go by the way of working your salvation, Christ can't help you. He says in verse 2, look at it. Behold, I, Paul, say to you. And again, this is for a fact. I'm saying this as the Apostle Paul, right? Gifted in which to write God's word, uniquely to inspire God's word, okay? To write that down. Say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be what? No benefit to you. Now, I put it in your notes because I didn't want you to forget it. There's that statement. If we do not let Christ do everything for us, then Christ can do what? Nothing for us. Get that down. Memorize that. If we don't let Him do everything for us, then He can do nothing for us. By receiving circumcision, they were saying that the work of Christ was insufficient. Remember what Jesus said on the cross? Most painful words ever. He said, it is what? Finished. And the Galatians are saying, no, it isn't. They're challenging that statement, saying, no, there needs to be more. By accepting the idea of righteousness by their own works, they're saying the righteousness that comes by faith wasn't sufficient. And they're legalistically, from a point of view, they're saying, well, Christ shouldn't even come. That's what they're doing. Since turning to the law means they're turning from Christ. Turning to, I'm going to get salvation my way and do it my way and work my way there like every other religion on planet earth, like every other belief, every other non, you know, all non-Christians work my way. I'm saying no to Jesus. The moment you are trying to work your way to heaven, you're rejecting Christ. Are you getting it? That's what he's saying. Circumcision had meaning to Israel. It meant a cleansed heart and it came with the salvation promise or the hope of that. The problem here is, is that by the atoning sacrifice of Christ cannot benefit anyone who trusts in circumcision or the law or the festivals or any other way. You cannot go that way. Paul's not objecting to circumcision itself. 
what he's saying is, is that it has no, look at verse 2, spiritual benefit. That means help or use to God. Uh, cutting away the foreskin is actually, they, they would think, a four prerequisite to salvation or even a necessary component to salvation. So write this down. If we try to help ourselves, Christ will be no help at all. If we try to help ourselves, Christ will be no help at all. John MacArthur put it this way, a person becomes acceptable to God only by placing his full trust in his Son, Jesus Christ. And after he is saved, he perseveres in living a life, now listen, acceptable to God only by continuing to trust in Christ alone. Now this is essential, you get this. Whether before or after conversion, your salvation, trust in human works of any kind is a barrier between a person, you, and Christ, and results in unacceptable legalism. God says, do not try to earn your salvation. It was provided for you. Live under the reality of that. That's number one. Number two, your life is all the law or nothing. All the law or nothing. Look at verse three. He says, and I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep how much of the law? The whole law. Now, Paul is really speaking out here. He goes, I testify. This is good Southern Baptist. I testify. Come to me. Come to me. Come on, talk to me. It's a strong protest. It is communicating urgency. It's a fact here. And he says, I'm testifying to receive circumcision. These Galatian Gentiles were placing themselves under a covenant commitment to keep the whole law. When you get married, you're saying, I'm now married in covenant with this person, my spouse, for the rest of my life in every aspect of marriage. When you commit circumcision, you're saying, now I'm embracing to follow this whole lifestyle that is incurred in circumcision and what it initiates. So the noun, when he says in verse 3 there, obligation, it means you're indebted, you owe it. You have a debt to pay it. You don't have a choice. You owe the whole law if you try to win salvation by circumcision or law-keeping or being moral or religious. And you probably ought to write this down. It's either all by grace or all by law. It's never part, it's never a smidgen of law with grace, ever. It's all law or all grace. And you know what? The only person who ever kept the whole law was who? Jesus Christ. Internally, externally, never a sin before God perfect life and his flawless life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection from the dead. He took the debt of your sin upon himself. It was punished there. It was judged there. All of it, past, present, and future. If you're his child, it was all there. And he covers you now with his perfect righteousness and now gives you a perfect standing before God that can never be taken away. He can be your substitute, but only if you come by faith. Again, one more time. Faith is a non-meritorious work where you're entrusting your life to Him. It's not a, just merely a belief. It's I'm surrendering my life to Him. I'm saying, you, I am now entrusting that you are going to provide me with salvation. It only comes through you. And I look to you only, not to myself, to anybody else, just to you. Not my church, not my You, Jesus. I'm trusting in you. The Galatians couldn't merely choose one small part of the law to obey, circumcision or something else. Once you choose any of it, write it down, you have to choose all of it. All of it. 
as a means of salvation. The only person who kept that law was Christ. And God's standard is flawless righteousness. To be in His presence now and forever, you must be perfect. And the only person who can be perfect internally, externally, is Jesus Christ. And He covers you with His righteousness. Justified. He makes you right before Him. So therefore, if there's any violation of that, just in the smallest way, and you're trying to earn your salvation, you fall short of His perfect character, and He condemns you to judgment in hell forever. Which, it's dumb to go back under the law, correct? So what Paul is saying then, to move from salvation by grace back to the salvation by works, trying to earn your way to heaven, is so bad, look what he says in number three, you're severed and fallen. You're severed, backside of your notes, you're severed and fallen. Now look at verse four. Again, these points that you're getting in your outline are just coming from the text, and the text says, you have been severed. Now that's not maybe. Maybe you're severed. No, it's, it's a fact. You're severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified, salvation, by law, by keeping steps, thou shalt, thou shalt not, earning your way, you have fallen, again, not a maybe, but a fact, you have fallen from what? Grace. Don't fall from grace. Don't relinquish, in a sense, your life to law or trying to please God by your works It's all grace. Those who try to be justified by works are cut off from Christ. And Paul's choice of words here are really significant. Verse 4, circumcision involved the cutting of the male foreskin. And the old covenant, this was saying that a Jew was cut off from the world. And if he ever walked away from the Lord, he's cut off from the Lord. And Paul's saying it's different. Under the new covenant, are you ready? Under the new covenant, under salvation that God has provided, if you got circumcised, then you would be cutting yourself off from Christ. And severed means estranged. It means separated, nullified. Rather than separating yourself from sin, which they thought circumcision was, you're actually severing your relationship with the Savior by doing that. And the underlying key principle, you got to get this, Paul is saying this, if you try to justify yourself, earn your own salvation, before God on the basis of your own works, and that's every other faith on planet earth, every other religion, Jesus Christ becomes a stranger to you. That's what he's saying. And you end up rejecting salvation by grace through faith alone. This is a serious warning to all churchgoers. And this warning um, is multiplied through the New Testament. It's not just one time. And I want you to look at one where it's very strong, and that would be Hebrews chapter 6. It's there in your outline. Basically, anyone who turns their back on Christ and seeks to be justified by trying to earn their own salvation their way, somehow, doesn't matter, are separated from Christ and lose all prospects of God's gracious salvation. Their desertion of Christ and the gospel proves that their faith was never genuine in the first place. Look at what he says in Hebrews chapter 6. He says, verse 4, for in the case of those who have been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Now, if you want to look at this later, in verse 9 of this context 
of Hebrews chapter 6. The author of Hebrews is speaking here very clearly to church-going, Christ-professing non-believers. Verses 4, 5, and 6 is speaking to non-believers, and he makes that very clear in verse 9. What he's saying to you, and by the way, this warning here in Hebrews is found throughout the New Testament. He's basically saying if you choose the law as your Savior and Lord, you're rejecting Jesus as your Savior and Lord. That's what he's saying. If you try to do it on yourself, very simply, can I put it to you this way? You cannot say, I have Jesus and Buddha. I have Jesus and Muhammad. I have Jesus and Mary. You can't say that. Any more than you can say, I have Jesus and the law or circumcision or anything else. It's Christ alone. Correct? That's what he's saying to us. And once you seek to be justified before God, before men, by your works, by your flesh, by your strength, by your abilities, then you're, it's very difficult to see them come to Christ by grace through faith. And the warning is very strong in the New Testament, not just here, but in multiple places. You have, verse 4, look at, fallen from grace. And that word fallen means to let go, to no longer trust it, to lose your grasp. Once you take up the torch of the flesh, you scorch the work of the Spirit. So Paul motivates the Galatians with this negative motivation, right? It's negative. But he also wants to give you some positive motivation. So let's look at those three. Secondly, in your outline, the positive motivation. And again, he says this in verse 5. He says, look, you're not living by, you know, works. You're living by faith. You're living by the Spirit, not the flesh. You're living by hope and not the uncertainty uh, of bondage to the law. Look what he says. All three of those are found in verse 5. For we through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. So he says to pursue grace, to live by grace, and you should be living by grace through faith. Number one, you're living in the Spirit. You're living in the Spirit. You're not doing it in your own strength. You're living in God's strength. You're living in the Spirit. Can you live the Christian life in your own strength? Yes or no? No! You need to live by the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit through you. So every genuine Christian in this room has the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Can I hear an Amen. Romans 8, 9, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. So you've got the Spirit of God. Now the question is, are you living by the Spirit of God, being filled by the Spirit? Because when you're not in the Spirit, you're in the flesh. So living in the Spirit is depending on Him. The verb actually tells us we need to depend on Him. And we rely on Him as we live saturated with the Word of God. The cross-reference to Ephesians 5.18, being filled with the Spirit, is Colossians 3.16, meaning let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. So you're letting the Word of Christ guide you as you depend on Him, but you're also sensitive to sin. He's the Holy Spirit, right? So you don't want to grieve Him or quench Him, two verses, sins of omission or commission. You want to deal with sin, and you also want to serve Him. That's the way He made you to serve. He gifted you to serve. And you're putting Christ on display. By the way, you're going to see this in, in chapter 5. Chapter 5 is going to tell you, listen, the Spirit-filled life is not for you, it's for others. It's for you to benefit others. And so you serve others, and as you live in the Spirit, now you have a life of faith and a life of freedom. And that's what he says. Let me encourage you, you're trusting in Him. You're relying on Him. He's living through you. Listen, only God can glorify God. It's the Spirit of God through you. 
So you're trusting him. And that's a positive motivation. You know, listen, the people who live by law or works, you know, they're trying to earn their way to salvation, they're trying, they're trying, they're trying, they're trying. Guess what you get to do? Depend. I depend on him. He works through me. Isn't that awesome? Sometimes we don't benefit ourselves from that relationship, but we depend on him. And he's ready to help us. Number two, secondly, you live in the certainty of a perfect standing. This is so awesome. You live with the certainty of a perfect standing. Look what he says in verse 5. By faith we are for a fact, okay, again, solid, factual, indicative here, waiting for the hope of righteousness. Now, one of the big differences between living by flesh and living by faith is our approach to righteousness. When you're working your way to heaven, you're trying to earn righteousness on your own shoulders, right? It's your responsibility. you got to get it right. But when you're living by faith, you're secured in righteousness because of what Christ has done for you, correct? So it's done for you, and now you live in the reality of Seeing His presence worked out through you imperfectly, yes, in sanctification, and then ultimately the hope that in one day when you face Him face to face, you are completely glorified, completely sanctified, completely perfect as He enters you into eternity. Correct? So you are not working for your salvation, you're waiting for it. So justification, write it down, is not something you work for, it's something you wait for. You're waiting for it. The Judaizers, again, are working it out. And the work of Jesus in their mind was incomplete. So you've got to keep the law, you've got to do the customs, etc. And Paul says, no, true believers through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness that is based on God's grace. And you see that word there in verse 5, hope? You see it? You've got to change your thinking on that. Because English hope means maybe it will, maybe it won't. That's English hope. It's uncertain. Biblical hope is it's a certainty and it's a reality in the future. A certainty of the reality of the future. It's an absolute certainty. It's different than English hope. And what he's saying here, will you be ultimately delivered by Jesus? Yes or no? Yeah, that hope is certain. The hope of righteousness. So this is how it plays out. Believers already possess the imputed righteousness of justification, but the yet incomplete righteousness of total sanctification and glorification still awaits you. That's the hope of righteousness. In this life, you're still waiting. And you, you kind of struggle a little bit, don't you? Come on, would you admit it? Please nod your head a little bit. For the complete and perfected righteousness that is yet to come, but the hope is it's a certainty. The Greek word would be, it's certain. You're going to get it. Hey, does God make promises that he doesn't keep? Did he promise that he would bring you home to heaven? And you're stuck, right? So you're going to get there. And thirdly, then he says, well, does it change the way I live? I mean, is this, you know, I'm just kind of hoping that it'll somehow work itself out? No. Number three, living a life of loving works. Living a life of loving works. Look at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You know what he's saying here? Another difference between living by flesh, your strength, and living by faith, 
is that your life becomes characterized not by law, rule, keeping, and living religious, but by depending on Him and then seeing His love live through you. Essential fuel to a flesh-oriented life is works. A Christ-centered life, though, is faith expressing itself in love. And Paul reminds each and every one of you, the externals, they don't really matter a lot. Right? There were Jewish people who were going, oh, circumcision, that's the only way. And then there were some Gentiles going, ah, uncircumcision, that's the only way. And Paul says, neither of those matter. Those are externals. What matters as a Christian is what? Your heart. Your heart. And that's why he says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. It's not strong at all. But faith working through love. In Galatians 6.15, he says, neither circumcision is anything nor uncircumcision, but the new what? Creation. Listen, Romans tells you 6.6, that your old man is dead. You have a new nature. That new nature, Romans 6.17, wants to obey and please him. You're not going to do it perfectly, but you want to. Even in your failure, you're going to go, but I still want to please him. And that's why it says in 1 Corinthians 7, 19, circumcision is nothing that external. The the uncircumcision is nothing that external. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God from, I believe, a new heart. Nothing done in the flesh in your own strength makes any difference in your relationship with God. What's external is immaterial and worthless. Unless it reflects something that came from your new nature and that it's empowered by the Spirit of God. And it's going to demonstrate itself in love. Listen, James said, faith without works is... So what Paul is saying is the same thing. He's just saying that faith is going to issue forth in the works of love. The works of love. Any Christian who lives by faith is internally motivated to love Christ and internally motivated to love others. In fact, he says, write it down, Romans 5.5, his love is shed abroad in your heart as a believer. What that means is, you have all the love you need, you just got to show it. It's already there, you just need to show it. And obediently submit to Him, and as you do, faith working through love. Now here again, we got God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Because He says, faith working through love. And working there is labor, action, deeds, achievement. Are you involved in this process, yes or no? Yes, you are. God provides it, but you step out in obedience. You work and labor for it, but it's God through you. Does your faith work out in love? You love to work it out. You work out to love. I know some of you, many of you in this room are serving others, and sometimes it's work. Is it not? It's work, but there's joy in that, especially when you're doing exactly what He wants you to do. There's always enough time under the sovereignty of God to accomplish His work. Amen to that? There's always enough energy under the will of God to accomplish His purposes. And sometimes you get tired, but you want to love others. You do, even when their phone rings in service. You want to love them. <laughs> so, would you, just for a moment, take your ministry off the table. Take it off the table and ask yourself, does your heart for Christ Show and love for Him and for others. Take your family, your extended family, your closest friends off the table and ask, does true faith in you 
demonstrate itself in love for God and love for others. It's so easy for us to kind of compartmentalize our lives and go, well, I I love people here and then I can live for myself there. What he's saying is, it's your life, your heart wants to love others and honor him and worship him. So if you would, let's take this home and ask four basic questions. Four basic questions. Do you appear to be more similar to the make-believer? The make-believer is someone who is a tear, right? In the church, there are wheat and there are tares. And tares look so similar to Christians that we will not be able to tell them apart. So there are some people in our midst who are under grace and we go, I wonder if they're saved. And there are some people who are under the law They're trying to earn their way of salvation. And we think, oh yeah, they got to be a genuine Christian. Because we can't tell them apart. Only God knows your heart, correct? So, what does a make-believer sound like? Well, you got a lot of clues in the New Testament. Remember the Pharisee and the publican? Remember that? How he prayed? Oh Lord, I'm glad I'm not like him. That's the prayer of a make-believer. Oh, I'm I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm not like them. You You know, when you realize that you've been saved by grace and you deserve to be condemned forever, you, you kind of start to diminish in your comparison of other people. You realize that everybody's in the same place, right? That we all are recipients of grace. And you don't start saying, well, I, I got the strength to obey and approve myself, and I measure up to standards set for me, and I'm making progress, and people compliment me, and I'm better than others. And that's the thinking of a make-believer. So as you identify with the New Testament, do you sound more like the publican or more like the sinner? God, thank you that I've just been graced and forgiven and cleansed. Or are you saying, I'm not like that guy? Letter B, do you appear to be more similar to a real believer? Now, a real believer is someone who's not depending on the law or rules or steps to get saved. But once you're born again, He gives you a heart that says, I, I want to be obedient to the Scripture. I want to follow the law because the law shows me what God is like. And I'm going to do so imperfectly, but I want to do what He wants me to do. Correct? And so you don't now resist the Bible. You don't say, well, obedience is legalism. No, you go, obedience is a way that in which I, I just enjoy His character. I enjoy His blessings. And I enjoy His presence and His work through me, through His Spirit. And so therefore, there's that element of I'm born again and I'm forgiven and I have this person perfect status, and God has given that to me, why wouldn't I want to serve others? Why wouldn't I want to give? Why wouldn't I desire to to live and to serve and to basically have my life reflect the glory of God? Correct? That's the heart of a believer. You want to follow Him. You want to please Him. You want to do what He wants you to do because He's so glorious. You didn't deserve salvation. You deserve condemnation. I really deserve condemnation. I got mercy. How about you? So I want to serve Him and please Him and live this life of liberty and not fall under the mandates of trying to earn His favor anymore. So are you more like the real believer? Letter C. Do you appear to be filled with the Spirit? Now again, one more time. Being filled with the Spirit is every moment. It's present tense. You're dependent. Living under His control. You, You want to be saturated in His Word and living independent obedience to his word you're confessing all known sin you're seeking to be a servant to him and a servant to others and when you do listen what's going to happen the spirit's going to work through you and in you 
The Spirit's going to manifest His fruit. You're going to see not a little love, a little kindness. You're going to see the fruit, all the nine elements somehow leaking out of you in varying degrees because it's one fruit. You're going to see more victory over the desires of the flesh. Listen, it's hard for you to admit it, but would you admit it as a believer? There have been times when you saw victory over sin in your life. Anybody? Yeah, you saw that and you said, wow, God, you can do powerful things. You even see getting along better with others. You'll even see answers to prayer and celebrate His presence and His providence and see Him working. Remember when you were a brand new baby Christian? Remember that way back when? I remember being a baby Christian, hanging out with three friends, and we're all celebrating. This, I've been saved a week. This is all true. And we're just rejoicing, and we're thinking about this new life in Christ, and, and we're praying silly prayers. Anybody pray silly prayers? Like, Lord, I remember this, it's true, vividly, we could really use some tacos, okay? Silly prayers, right, that don't really matter. Your brand new baby Christian, you don't know what to pray. I, I want tacos. And we're all laughing and cracking up, and I wonder, I wonder if God does that kind of stuff. And we're just rejoicing. We pop over a friend's house whose mother greets us at the door. She goes, why don't you stay for dinner? We're having... I'll never forget that. And we're all like, wow! You know? And baby Christians, they need that kind of kick. You know? It's like, wow! God answers prayer. Now, he's answered some big prayers that are much better than tacos. Okay? So, understand that. Just this morning, I, I, I just, it made me think of it, so that's why I'm sharing it. I'm standing up here getting ready. I always get the plan, get my water and all that kind of stuff before you all get here, before first hour. And while I was driving to church, no kidding, I just said out loud, Lord, I'm a little tired today. I could really use a cup of coffee. It's not on our diet. I could really use a cup, but I don't have time to stop at Starbucky, you know, and stuff like that. So I just come, and the coffee's not ready on the patio, and I'm standing here, and, you know, I gotta believe it. This lady walks through those doors, walks right up front here, goes, I got you a coffee. <laughs> he did that for you today to remind me to tell you he answers little prayers big prayers giant prayers little things he's involved in every element and situation of your life and you're in perfect standing with him and he delights in you and he wants only what's best for you and for his glory right letter d so do you appear to be under the yoke of christ or law Again, look at this verse, and don't put your notes away because it'll scare you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. It's an open invitation to God to say, look, you're under the weight of the law. You're under the weight of religion. You're trying to earn your way to heaven. And you know what? Come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. It's forgiveness. It's grace. It's all that. But you know what? We're in a bad way. And we are so sinful in our rebellion that without the sovereign hand of God spiritually awaking us as sinners, we would reject Him. He has to come and change our heart so that we can respond to Him by faith and repentance. He has to. Because the Bible says you were dead in your trespasses and say, and dead people don't respond. 
They need to be awakened. This is not just a theological system. This is a biblical truth. You say, Chris, where do you get it from? Remember Matthew eleven twenty eight. Look at the previous verse. Look at what he says. All things have been handed to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one does anyone know the Father except the Son. Now watch this. And anyone to whom the what? Son wills to reveal Him. Circle that, the Son wills. Here it is. God is sovereign in willing you, revealing Himself to you. Divine election, you must be called to it, but it is not incompatible with the very next verse, which is, come to me. Your kids can't tell you, I'm not called. I don't need to turn to Christ. No, they need to come to Christ. They are responsible to come to Christ. But we know, post-salvation, that we could never get there unless God willed that we could get there. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, what you do is you cry out to God and you say, would you change my heart? Would you change my heart so that I could respond to you and know what it means to be under the blessing of Christ, the mercy of Christ, the graciousness of Christ, the perfect standing of all my sin, past, present, and future in Christ, that I'm secured for all eternity and to live in the reality, the freedom of what it means to be in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use your word to change our lives. Father, we ask that you would be pleased to work in our midst to draw anyone who doesn't know you to yourself. And Father, we would ask that we as believers would be those who trust you and live under the reality of an incredible position of being forgiven and cleansed and washed and made right forever. And never to take advantage of that, but Father, to also to lean on you and to trust you, even in our darkest day, that we're secure in you. And we pray that we might respond in a way that would be pleasing to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.